From Los Angeles, California, this is Burncast, and I'm the bomb. Today on Burncast, we go to Zara Dolzora. Formerly a theme camp at Burning Man, Zara has grown to become an event of its own. It takes place in the pastoral landscape of southeast San Diego County on the grounds of the Madre Grande Monastery. At Zara, we'll talk to Mark Hinckley, the director and creator of the event. We'll also meet Lindsay Lawler, creator of the Rave Raff, an art car that emulates a walking giraffe. Finally, we'll say goodbye to Chai Guy, the co-host of Burncast, as he takes the summer off to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. Zara del Zura is a creative mythology festival and a spiritual retreat for artists. According to the website, it is a, quote, world within a world, an immersive and interactive art installation of jungle ruins and blacklight rainforests, the ghosts of a civilization long lost and not yet begun. In this interview, Mark agreed to play the three-playa community drinking game by proxy, which means somebody else, in this case Painey, will drink in his stead. We begin with Hinckley describing the genesis of Zara. Zara began as, in a certain way, Zara's been rattling around my head since 1972 or so. Wow. And it first turned up as a place name in some swords and sorcery story I was writing in high school. And it always had an interesting sound. And long about 96, I read about Burning Man, and I thought, oh, wow, this sounds interesting. I spent a couple years trying to get friends organized to go. And I had an idea based on my own aversion to summer heat and dry desert that I wanted to create a sense of psychological cool and I had a general interest in like Mayan ruins and lost civilizations and that sort of thing and uh, I was a drama major in college and had studied scene design and some of this and I had this idea about creating the feeling of a jungle in a desert as sort of an ironic thing and to try to create a sense of psychological cool and uh, we came up with this idea before I'd ever been to Burning Man and so I developed this project without having ever seen a theme camp <laughs> and I had sort of a inflated idea of what everybody was doing and so what we set out to create was uh, like a three-dimensional environment like a stage set that you could walk through from all angles and play inside and it was in a way like the the set of a story with the story being left to the improvisation of whoever came through. And um, it blew up and people loved it and there was, we had grass on the ground and the thing that just, that took me by surprise was how people jumped into feeling uh, the invitation of the space and how how it invokes sort of a playful improvisation and there were people hiding by the pass and jumping out and making animal sounds and things and we realized that we had sort of accidentally hit on something that did create kind of the I don't know sort of a, a childlike playfulness and as that project kind of grew that became the, the fun in the game was to create space that invited play without us having to tell anybody what to do or what they were invited to do and uh, so this was popular it grew this is all sort of driven by uh, 
my own madness and the bigger this jungle can be the more it looked like a jungle and it got bigger and bigger and uh, over the course of a number of years at uh, Burning Man we made friends with a lot of other uh, great artists and uh, we began uh, setting up installations at uh, some parties with some of our friends and uh, along the way we've done installations of our, our jungle exhibit as uh, exhibits in the Children's Museum in San Diego and we uh, were an award-winning entry in this uh, landscape and garden show at the San Diego County Fair without having any real flowers uh, and again with this sort of black light jungle and uh, so we were looking for a place where we could have a party without bothering anybody and go all night and we were frustrated and somebody mentioned this location and we came out here and we recognized pretty much right away that this could be a lot more than an overnight party and so it became sort of the opportunity for this theme camp to just absolutely outgrow itself and uh, and let everybody sort of come play the same theme game. Somewhere late in the game came an idea that sort of justified this jungle ruin thing about it being a uh, sort of a paradoxical uh, architectural ruin that was left from the future as sort of a warning to the present in order to allow mankind today to get it straight so that this future paradise called Zara could come into being. And it was this ruins were sent back in time as sort of a warning and an invitation to the present day. Uh, we don't, nobody needs to understand this story just to appreciate the jungle, right. but that became sort of a rationalization jump-off point for what we're doing here, which is to enact that 400-year future civilization that's solved its problems, and here's and now the civilization is getting together to celebrate its imaginary festival about the return of summer, and it's not really Beltane, it's not Melt May Day, but it's responding to all those same themes. And we invite everybody to imagine what it might be like 400 years from now when we get it all straight and we're living the way we ought to live. And how might that civilization come out to a pastoral place and celebrate the coming of summer together? And it has turned into the opportunity for people to come create the kind of participatory art that's uh, done at Burning Man. And I think that part of what has been an accidental effect of the theme about it being kind of a paradise future, and also now here we are in this place that's so green and pretty, uh, it, it, uh, it tilts the art away from the edginess that's a lot of the fun of Burning Man and the harshness towards something of a more gentle and optimistic look. And the landscape is pretty, and it's welcoming, and, it's, and you feel it's loving and receptive. It isn't trying to kill you like the desert. And what has grown up over here over four years, it's been an interesting learning experience to me because the more I watch this, the more I realize I don't know what this vibe is or should be. And my, when I'm at my best, when I'm standing back and watching what's just coming up out of the ground and then plan to make more of that possible and to happen. So it's growing, and in my opinion, it's growing in its own shape and direction, and it's become something else. I, I think, and maybe this is just me, but we didn't set out to be a miniature Burning Man, and there are very sincere spiritual intentions about what I mean by creative mythology, and the beauty part is, I really think that this, there's kind of a double deception in that calling this a creative mythology 
festival may tend to, and this is in fact a spiritual retreat, but saying so may lead people not to recognize how much fun we're having here. But all the fun we're having here tends to invite people to come have the spiritual experience that they might have avoided had it been presented as a more serious kind of a thing. And from the beginning, people have come and said, well, you know, I came and I thought it was a party, but you know, it really was. It really felt spiritual. There was something here. Something like we asked Larry Harvey, was Burning Man a religious experience or a fucking party in the desert? Well, uh, my opinion about that, I mean, is to Burning Man, is it is absolutely a religious experience. And I mean this utterly, literally. And you, you can't spend this kind of time in the presence of this much divinity in the face of everybody else around you, especially when this divinity at its best and it's creative and it's most generous and giving. You can't, and in the desert, you know, it's 10, 11 days, but here even for a long weekend to spend this time where people spent time before they came thinking of what would make you happy and they're bringing it forth and everybody's doing it for everybody else and it just mounts up and it becomes ridiculous. And this is... I mean this literally, this is a face of God. We come here and it's in the landscape, it's in the ground, it's in the music, it's in each other, and it's it's here in our heart. And it's, I think the, the icon of this is the human individual. And, and boy, that is divine. And I think that we find it here in our individualism. And even in that individualism, somehow what we're finding is that background unity. I think that comes through here. And the festival experience is an essential human uh, impulse. This is a this is a, a healthy experience of Homo Ludus, man the player. And um, my hero Joseph Campbell talks about this festival experience and how there is kind of a gradation of experience from fun to exhilaration to real rapture and how we you break through to something where we realize that we are connected and that life really isn't so solemn and serious as it may seem and that even the the frustrations and the sorrows of loss 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 which is the experience of life is the foreground illusion of a deep rapture and and you don't need to be able to articulate that to yourself but you can you experience that here and the and the great thing is without it coming with a script without somebody telling you this is what you've just experienced it's in you and you go home and you've got to sort it out for yourself but it's already happened in your spine you've already experienced it uh, one of my real favorite Joseph Campbell quotes is well he, he, Bill Moyers was interviewing him and he says well you're a man of faith and he kind of shook his head I don't need faith I have experience and here we can experience what it is that we hope for for ourselves as spiritual beings, for ourselves as a political community. Take my shot. <laughs> wait, wait, you just said community. Hold on. Not whiskey. Not whiskey. I'm not drinking. All right, I'll, I'll take the shot. Right. I'm not a drinker, but I'll do this. <laughs> all right, all right. Mark Higley just had a shot. Wait, we're all supposed to drink, dude. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to have my shot. Okay. All right. Oh! Yeah, tangy, huh? What? Tangy. Yeah, a little rough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I'm sure. All right. I, I, so you said the word community. Can you remember I, your thought? I, I don't have any call. I did what I was talking about. <laughs> There's something there. Spiritual community. Yeah, something. But, yeah, here we are. So let me oh, ask. yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the political side of this. Is that what I like? I mean, what... 
none of this was thought through, but I've been doing this and the ideas occurred to me like, oh, this is kind of a cool accidentally, a cool idea accidentally because of this or that. And one of the accidentally cool ideas is by just sort of pretending ourselves into a future world, we're already there and we don't have to quibble about the policy and the details and the mind-numbing minutia and bureaucracy that it would take to transform ourselves. We're not talking about next steps. We're not talking about political action. But if you experience that and take that, and, I mean, once you've experienced it, it's part of you. It literally rewires the circuitry of your brain, and you can't help but go home and want to find some other way to amplify and bring that out. And I believe this in a really tiny way. In a really tiny way, what we're doing here is important because we are sending people out of here change. And some people it's a little thing, and some people it's a really big thing. But then they are, without any or marching orders, they are. Uh, they go out into the world as agents of change, trying to find, I mean, at least motivated and invigorated, try to find better ways. So let me ask you this, Mark. Do you think that uh, Izard Zura, the most successful non-official Burning Man Regional Regional event? I really don't know. Well, I guess I probably don't know what the universe of those other kinds of events are, and I wouldn't have any idea how to qualify success. And so I, I don't. I don't know anything about that. Well, do you mean? I mean, what I mean is, is how does how does Zara Lazura in its current form? as this experience relate to Burning Man and how I mean how do they feed off of each other and how are they interrelated and, and what's and how and, and what why did why was there that split from from the seemingly from the event well actually no longer there oh why why aren't I producing a theme camp at right. Burning Man anymore right alright well that's about four questions okay maybe if I answer the first three you'll forget to ask me the last one <laughs> Okay, well, actually, the reason, honestly, it just got to the point that what we were trying to do just got so big, it became, it, it, the bigger it got, the longer it took to build, right. and the harder it was for them to find ways to work us into the city zoning, and it just sort of became impractical and expensive, and by that time, we had this going on in such a way. Uh, you know, I, I'm uh, 50 years old, I've got three boys from 9 to 16, and... Uh, I can only do so much. And so doing this once a year feels like plenty. Right. And uh, and I did start this. I started this before Burning Man really kind of geared up its own initiative about how it wanted to organize its regional things. So by the time that was happening, I already kind of, I mean, I'd, I'd frankly done the work and right. incurred the risk and the loss to get it started. And, and I did have a different vision for it. I, I wasn't trying to create the Burning Man miniature experience. So, but as far as we um, feed off of or whatever, we're both tapping that this, I don't know what this ism is. I guess in 50 years, some art critic will come up with an ism for what we're doing now, this participatory art thing where we're not relying on experts and we're doing it ourselves and empowering one another and teaching each other skills. You know, here's how you wire LEDs or here's how you weld. Right. Whatever that kind of participatory artism, uh, Burning Man didn't invent it. I freely admit I I hadn't seen it until I saw it there. But it's part of something bigger, and I think what we're both doing together is giving people this opportunity to come out and 
uh, have the safety um, and the kind of the lack of aesthetic judgment and those kinds of critical scholarly things to bring forth something creative, authentic of themselves, and it's a tremendously courageous act. And if there's if there's one thing that we, if there's one thing I could do and wish you know wave a wand and be sure I did right all the time would be to kindle that courage in people to to plumb themselves and find something and then bring that forth and the first little steps can be really baby steps but man that that can be a, a breakout and then and then in another kind of a sense uh, both Burning Man and, and this event have uh, you know we're enjoying the talents of a lot of the same kind of people and um, I, I know that there are folks who are very, very active project producers at Burning Man now who got their first taste of this culture at all here. And uh, certainly, certainly, um, the opportunity for us to do this came from the fact that we had done our installation out at the desert and a lot of people knew what we did. And so when we said, hey, we want to do this, there were a lot of people who were familiar with us already. And, and Burning Man gave me an audience in a venue where I could do a kind of art. And really, I'm I'm not an art. I'm not a good artist. There's so much that I, I can't draw. I can't paint. I can't. I can't. I can't. And so what Zara ended up being was the composite of all my weaknesses. I, you know, what is my tool? I can use scissors. And what it looks like is crap until you hang acres of it. And then somehow it magically is something else. Part of what I think I can do is inspire people to look around here, and here's all this detailed, elaborate stuff, but it's all scuffed, and it's all, the lines are crooked, and it's nicked <laughs> and dinged up, and it's all handmade by a guy late at night, and I think it says to people, you know, if this guy can do this with nothing but patience, you can do this too. Yeah. Well, for all of the, uh, for all of like the similarities that we can draw between Burning Man and Zara, I also notice there's a lot of differences. Uh, you, you don't seem to have copied their model on a lot of different things. For example, I, there's no real security force here, like the Black Rock Rangers, and uh, and and or, you, media. or there's no media here. Um, you you really listen to the participants. I know that there's been a lot of changes this year with the sound systems and the times that music are playing that are a direct result of people who who said, "Hey, can we change this?" And you're listening to them and changing it. So I just. Want to know how you, you know, if you could add anything to that? Well, that's that's really flattering to hear you say. Thank you. I, um, I, I uh, well, one of the okay, well, one of the really interesting things to me about my experience in Burning Man is the whole kind of uh, uh, game and challenge and social dynamics of mobilizing volunteers to do big things collectively for for what you know, without any kind of hope of personal gain, right. and. This this is uh, this is fascinating to me. So, part of what has come out of this is my own uh, revision of some ideas about uh, politics and how to run organizations. And frankly, I have the opportunity to do this as a monarchy. And the the difference is is that nobody's being walled in and held as a serf, and they can vote with their feet by saying, "I'm not going to do this." And so it's always this Tom Sawyer game of getting people to help paint the white fence. And, um, <laughs> um, and, and what I have found or what I think, this is my intuition and maybe I'm right and this is why I've been kind of good at this, is I'm very transparent about it, saying 
you know, I'm going to make these final decisions, but these are the things that I'm basing it on, and then people can participate. And really, I, I do listen because uh, because there's all these other heads, and they've got things to say, and um, and so on. As far as other similarities or different, well, a difference is this is a 21 and up and only event. Mm-hmm. Although it is, I mean, I, m- people I think would generally agree that it's not as edgy. Is that there's less that you would want to shield a child's eyes from. Right. But I have a philosophy that there are some experiences that are appropriate for adults that aren't appropriate for children. And in our world. Everything has been so carefully sanitized and protected for children, which is great. I mean, there are things that children shouldn't be exposed to. But that doesn't mean adults should live 365 days of the year in uh, in that kind of a that kind of a level and in effect and this is part of the festival experience too is it is about sort of a shock to the system a psychological kind of a shock and the sorts of things that would create that an adult would be too strong for a child by definition and and vice versa if it's if it's appropriate for a child it's really not going to rattle uh, an adult in such a way as to have them reevaluate anything and now I know with Burning Man they have this idea that well kids are the future and we need to see them and I love children and I'm on the school board in my community and uh, I am a Drink. father but part of what that has inspired me to believe is that children don't need to be at your side every minute ah alright <laughs> alright ah. so that's only two Okay. And what about the, uh, what about the... Well, so far you've beat Larry Harvey at this game. <laughs> what about... For, for saying it too many yeah. times? He or... really, he was really good at avoiding the word. All right. Yeah. Was he making a point of it? <laughs> there was one point where he said, well, you know, the communal living... No, I see, and I he's see. like, that's not the word, is it? I'm like, no. No, no. Okay. <laughs> it was close. So do you not feel at this point that there needs to be security like the Black Rock Oh, Rangers? oh, security. Well, I think that we're following sort of, uh, well, you know, we get to learn from what, from their experience, and we're are, we're kind of following in their footsteps, but we're still at a thousand people. And Burning Man at a thousand people didn't have Black Rock Rangers yet and this kind of stuff. We have emergency services people here. We have people with medical training. We have people who are keeping an eye on things, and we have radio contact with each other, and we have um, we have contingencies for reacting to certain kinds of emergencies. But we don't have uniformed security people because we haven't. There's been no need for it whatsoever. And the fact that you can come here and have a thousand people here without it is part of. Uh, you know, it's part of what's communicated, and I don't know if if there were drunken brawling or something, uh, uh, we would necessarily have to have uh, an answer for that. But w- but there hasn't. This is four years. It's Saturday night. I guess there's still time tonight. But we we haven't had those kinds of incidents, and so as long as we haven't, um, maybe our paradise future doesn't need armed security or uniform security. So what's the capacity for the event? How how big would you like to grow this event? Is there is there a limit specifically here to uh, the monastery to how many people that you can bring in? What our limit our the limit here is parking capacity actually, uh, or that capacity gets reached long before we would run into the point where it was just plain too crowded for people. I think that there's a point where I mean what's kind of nice here is that over three four days in 
half a mile of a valley up and down, you do see the same faces, and there's a sort of familiarity, and we're in this together thing that develops that wouldn't happen in a city of 30,000. And that is part of the charm. And at a certain point, it gets too big for that feeling. I think that two or 3,000 people in here would still have that feeling. Um, we've been talking with the monastery about um, plans to work with expanding parking to accommodate 2,000 people. And um, so that's kind of a tentative thought at this point in time. Right. We always come back after these things and sit down with the monastery people and assess how everything went and you know look for things that we're going to um, do in the future. But um, but if we were to continue to work here, that there would be the opportunity to expand to you know say two or three thousand people, which is I think about as many as would still feel cozy and homey. This is, you know, this is actually another thing is that uh, we're at the size that Sandy and I really can do this as a mom and pop operation. And what was built here, it was built by my buddy Jay and I, you know, and then we've got another four or five buddies that come and help us build it uh, on site. And so it allows us to have a personal contact with the people and kind of do that service after the sale and things. And But I've seen the difference between 400 and 1,000 people and how that kind of spreads me thin. Even so, I think we could double in size and still kind of keep the personal touch that that I think is part of the feeling here. Okay. Can we talk about crea creative mythology for a minute? Creative what? Creative mythology. Oh, yeah. So you said this place is run like a monarchy. Yes. Does that mean that you are the ruler of this monarchy? I am absolutely the ruler of the monarchy. And, As uh, a stereotype, can you tell me how you artistically express that? Well, I'm not... I hope that I'm not expressing my monarchy much, my monarchhood much. This this isn't so much the point, except that it streamlines decision makings, damn it. We're, no, we're not going to have committee meetings. This is the, what we're going to do, and let's sit down and we'll talk, and here's the 15 ideas. Okay, here's the decision, and on we go. And go! Right, right. And to a certain extent, I suppose everybody is invited and called to be the the king of their own life, or else somebody's going to do it for you, and then you've lost the chances of your own life and experience. So maybe, I mean, if maybe there's something metaphorically there that, you know, with whatever I am the king of this weekend, <laughs> in my cardboard sets, um, everybody is called and can somehow, in one way or another, even if, if it's in cardboard for a weekend, um, to be the king they, uh, they were born to be. This isn't, this isn't, I think, a uh, driving feature of what I mean by creative mythology and so forth. Okay. Uh, what do you mean? What do I mean by creative mythology? Um, well, all right, well, here's another uh, Campbell quote. This is his phrase. And um, he says that in a traditional mythology, the symbols are maintained in a strict kind of social order and a set of rites, and there's like a priestly caste that hands these things out so that people going through these various rites of passage or whatever will go through these motions and experience or pretend to experience certain insights and emotions. In creative mythology, on the other hand, this order is reversed so that it begin the the person has experienced something themselves, whether it's uh, terror or the sublime or mere exhilaration or some kind of depth of insight, and then they try to share this, communicate this through signs. And if that depth has been of a certain depth and import, then his communication will have the power of living myth. 
I believe that in the West, in the biblical traditions, we are we are saddled with a mythology that insists that it be taken not only for its mythological symbolic value, which is truthful and and a there's truth for, in that for us, but it also insists that it be taken as historic journalism in an age when we know these things didn't happen and couldn't happen and then we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater as well if you're telling me this happened and we know this didn't happen then your whole idea may be lost uh, in the Easter for the Greeks they knew there weren't real gods in Olympian these these were poetic images that were intended to express ideas well and human beings have always been tugged and pulled by uh, symbol systems that are inherited, they're imprinted, like the way a baby chicken would run from the shadow of a haunt. We have these things that come back from the caves and long was before the caves, back to protoplasm. There's some kind of inherited instinctive uh, systems. And these things are always going to uh, speak to us. And if we can let go of the idea that we need a prophet's life to have inspired us, and if we can just dig into our own inspiration and unconscious and depth for new interpretations of these same symbols that we can through new myths give these symbols life again to give us a structuring order to to align the mythic potential of the individual with the possibilities that are presented in his actual living world and society so that he can live out his real potential in the practical world he lives in. And mythologies that deal with uh, working in vineyards and being a shepherd and so on, not many of us do that anymore. And it's a long time before we may distill down new myths of the machine. Um, and uh, what I would like to think is that the myths of the machine are the question of who is going to be the master. And uh, anyway, I think that there are new there are new myths to be born. The same old symbols carry the same old meanings, and in new stories, they can unlock something that's always been in us that we need now more than ever. This whole project got started because of our issues with the media. We just want to know how you feel about media being present at this event. Uh, to tell you the truth, it makes me uncomfortable. And what I've always felt is that um, I I want this event to grow really by word of mouth because this is kindred spirits talking to kindred spirits. And the any like sales advantage of media attention uh, would be offset by the high probability in my mind that something would be misrepresented and in this political climate um, what we're trying to do it, it is sincere but you know it, it, somebody could come and point fingers and say well this looks like this and anyway it seems to me that there's far more misunderstandings that could be created and drawn now but then again the press has rights and so forth I've been perhaps lucky that we just haven't drawn press attention much and we're not trying to draw press attention much and so far we haven't had to we really haven't had to fight it and that yeah that's been all right I guess the last question would be then is where do you see Zara where do you hope to see Zara go in the future where by about 10 o'clock on Thursday morning when this event was opening, I said, I'm never doing this again. I'm going to give my whole life to uh, the practice of law or some other kind of activity. Uh, now, it, I'm, I got over that and, uh, you know, you get tired. Uh, well, uh, I would like to, I would like to see this event grow. 
I would like to see participants, and I, I'm seeing this as a gradual process, and this can't be hurried, it has to happen in its own way, but I would like to see participants more and more work with and explore the kind of the mythological themes and opportunities and, and spiritual art, and yet still playful and fun in such a way as that it is engaging. Uh, I think Greece needs this. I think Greece in August would be a good place for a companion event. And uh, and in the longest term, it would be need to be a little asterisk in that um, art history book of the early 21st century. Very nice. Well, uh, this is Chai Guy. Vaughn, thank you very much. I had a great time talking to you. It's a highlight of my Zara's experiences. Mine thank too. you both. Thank you both. Yeah. The electric giraffe, also known as Rave Raff, is a life-size robotic giraffe made by Lindsay Lawler that was inspired by a small-scale Japanese model that can fit in the palm of your hand. Lindsay based the raft's engineering and walking mechanism completely on this diminutive toy. At 17 feet tall and weighing 1,700 pounds, the raft actually walks on wheeled feet that are designed to give it variable traction control. It can carry people around in its mainframe compartment that is eight feet off the ground. We talked to Lindsay about the process of creating his project. I'm here at Zara with Lindsay Lawler, who built this beautiful project, the giraffe. We call it the electric giraffe, okay. or the rave raff. The rave raff. Yeah, yeah. He's got a he has his own little blog online at rave underscore raff r a f f e uh, at Live Journal. So if you look up rave raff at Live Journal, you'll see his little personal blog. Okay, and what does he what does he talk about? Just about the things that are happening to him and the modifications that are coming and up and coming events and things. And uh, you can get more information at electricgiraffe.com. No special spelling, just electric giraffe. And we're posting our pictures and our uh, the construction of the giraffe and um, a little bit about the inspiration and how it all happened and how it all came about. Okay, well, why don't you start with the beginning? How were you inspired by this project? I dress as a zebra usually when I go to Burning Man, a full head head to toe zebra, and I've been doing that for years. And I've thought for a while now that I would like to build something for Burning Man. Uh, quite often, I get involved in rather ambitious projects that don't always come to fruition. And this one we determined was going to happen, but we just didn't really know exactly how we were going to realize it. And I went riding around um, Burning Man in uh, 2001 through 2003 with the idea of let's going to let's build an art car. And I rode around on various machines. The first inspiration were the putt-putt horses. These are these little plywood horses that you see driving around on go-kart frames. And I thought, OK, that's a neat animal to ride around on. Because quickly I realized that along with the zebra costume, whatever it is I build, I would like it to emulate an animal. So I rode around on some of those. And I thought they were kind of cute. But they didn't really carry very many people. And I didn't know exactly how many people I wanted to carry, but I at least wanted to be able to carry a few friends, make it kind of a social machine. So then I rode around on a really wonderful machine called the Human Gumball Machine. And this was really neat. It was, a, it was exactly like a desktop gumball machine with a red top and red sides. And it had a children's slide in it. And it was really huge. And it could carry about 15 people. And you climbed a ladder up on that, onto this thing. And when I got up that high, Burning Man completely changed. It was just this complete transformation from all the years I've been where everything's happening at eye level. And it was like, wow, you know, OK, I would like to have some height. And very quickly, going along with the zebra costume, wanting to build an animal, 
I, I kind of like hooved animals and sticking around with the African plains was sort of an idea in the first place. Instantaneously, the, the idea to build a giraffe came to mind. And from there, uh, next was figuring out, okay, what kind of giraffe? How are we going to do this? And wasn't your inspiration a toy? I... Yes. Yes, there's this little toy. Um, originally, the giraffe was going to look very, very organic. Um, the project was very ambitious in the artistic sense. We were going to carve all of the bones from a real giraffe out of plexiglass and have a complete plexiglass skeleton. And then we were going to attach motors and robotics to it to make it move just like a real giraffe. And we were going to have a car frame underneath it that was covered in grass. And so it would be completely camouflaged in, in a light tan grass just like the playa. And so you would see this giraffe that appeared to be walking and it would all be lit up with LEDs and you could see through to be like a translucent see-through giraffe. This was the original envision, but also in keeping with making it like a real giraffe, the very most it was going to be able to carry was two people on saddles on the back, just like a real giraffe if you, put a if you were able to put a saddle on a giraffe. So right away I was a little disappointed with the number of people it was going to carry, but I thought maybe down on the car frame some more people could ride around in the grass, or maybe he could tow a trailer and I could have my friends along that way. Well, along comes this little model from Tamaya, and it's this little walking model giraffe. And I have What's Tamaya? Tamaya is a model corporation from Japan that makes beautifully detailed models of tanks and airplanes and cars and race cars and things like that, and electric radio control race cars. And I've been building their models my whole life. Ever since I was a little kid, I've been building Tamaya models. I've always really loved them for their detail. The Japanese are just fanatics for detail. And they've come out with this little robotic toy series. There's about eight or nine models of different things, a little giraffe and a and an elephant, and I think some bugs and some other things. And I saw this little model, and it had a really nice leg-walking motion. And so I took it home to um, my co-designer, Gary Stadler, uh, who I live with, a wonderful engineer, doing a couple of projects like the Quadrupus, which some of you may be familiar with, and the Inner Mind Project, which he did, which is a great big brain out on the flyer that you can walk through. Gary, I, I brought the design home, and I showed him this little walk-walking model, and I said, hey, look at this. Here's a neat little machine that moves all four legs at the same time. Maybe we can incorporate this into the giraffe project. Now, keep in mind, at this point, the giraffe project had not even gotten off the ground yet. Um, I'd assembled a welder, and I bought some steel, and I was starting to practice welding some bits together, but we really nowhere at all down the road towards realizing the full life-size skeleton of the giraffe. Now, let me be clear, you've never welded before this project, or...? Only in part in school, like, you know, just small school projects in metal shop and things like that. You know, I've, I've, I've known how to weld, you know, okay. But prior to this, no, it wasn't anything that I did with any regularity. So I set this little model down on the table and had it walk, and I pointed it to Gary, and Gary shot straight out of his chair and said, Lindsay, you should just build that. There's all the engineering right there waiting for you. There is engineering that was painstakingly done. If you just took that and took the next logical step and made a giraffe out of that, you're, you're, you're in business. And I was very upset and very argumentative because here was two years or more of design of having this whole giraffe, very organic you know, machine to the point of where you couldn't even really see the robotics on it, was all in my head to make something like a real giraffe. And here was this completely different, stocky, strange, robotic thing and I was very opposed to the idea at first until Gary pointed out one very, very obvious fact, which was my design was going to be rolling around on four wheels just like any other art car does out there, runs around on four wheels. Gary pointed to this robot and says, you build this, it's actually walking. And nobody has that. And I was like, hmm, that was a very stiff argument that I could not 
you know, go against. And so with about four to eight hours of discussion and scribbling on paper, Gary and I had the basics of what we were going to do down. And from there, we, um, he got on eBay during the day and purchased all the parts for me while I did my nine to five job. Um, he, he just lives at home. And uh, so he, he was my parts acquirer. And so pretty soon boxes and boxes of parts started to show up and welders from my friends started to show up. Plasma cutters started to show up all kinds of just the most amazing number of friends and people and hardware came together out of the blue to make this thing happen. It was, it was just by magic. And, and it's the biggest leap of faith that I've ever taken in my life because I knew that somewhere along the way as we're doing this, we're going to encounter some really nasty engineering problems. But I decided instead of having it all worked out ahead of time, which I'm normally, I normally will not work on something until I, I can see it all the way to its very end and know that it's going to work, I won't do it. In this case, this was a blind jump right off the cliff into a world that I have never been in before of welding every single day after work and welding all weekend long and just welding and grinding and grinding and welding. And when it was all said and done, we had a walking frame in the backyard and a whole new set of friends. And... The day came for it to walk, its very first step, and my friend Mike was sitting there with his camera and he was looking at the thing and he looked at me right in the eyes and he said, I feel like I'm in a dream. He says, I feel like I'm dreaming. And then it took its first step, which was not very good. It was really scary. We had to do some changes. But um, the, so the original first steps of the giraffe were rather frightening and we didn't know if the project even was going to work then. What happened that was so scary? Uh, the step that the giraffe takes is variable depending upon the size of the crankshaft that you use. And so um, if you uh, if you vary the, the step of the crankshaft, then that varies the whole step that the giraffe takes overall, how many feet it's going to walk. Well, the original step was over four feet. So when it actually tried to take its first step, it was picking its foot up off the ground, almost a foot and a half. And when it did that, and then, you know, a thousand pounds of steel came forward on that leg as it overbalanced and fell, the impact was huge. And the giraffe jerked violently back and forth in the air, and we thought it was going to fall over. And um, so the very first couple of steps were very scary and, you know, disappointing because we thought, oh, wow, we've, you know, we've built this whole thing and we were, we're, in, a, we're in a stumbling block here. But that was the anticipated stumbling block. And so we made some modifications, changed some geometry, changed the geometry of the crankshaft. And lo and behold, on the second go, well, I, did, I thought I might have to go through revision three or revision four or revision five. On the second revision to the walking mechanism, we nailed it. Wow. It's perfect. There's no need to change it at this time. It walks beautifully. What, was the, what were the modifications you had to make to make it work? We, the crankshaft stroke originally was four inches. Um, we made it down to two inches. By varying the, the, the size of the crankshaft, that reduced the whole step of the giraffe overall. So it was down to about four or five inches instead, which still translates into a full foot and a half to two feet of movement per step because he has inertia. When he steps, he lands on his tires and he rolls a couple of extra inches. So that was the other thing that really helped was we're walking on tires. So that acted as a cushion because he doesn't have knees. And so um, therefore he, um, on that second change where we changed the legs geometry and just changed the way he walks, it was really good that we had been looking very closely at the geometry of the legs and we nailed it. You know, we just nailed it. So now what we need to do... What did it feel like when you nailed it? Oh, I was, I was, I was ecstatic. I was completely ecstatic because, you know, we, it, it, it was scary because, you know, here I had reached this, you know, almost ejecting stopping point. Like, oh, God, we have a problem. And I've done all this welding. I've got 60% of the giraffe made now. 
am I, have I just, you know, run into a dead end? Am I done? And so with version two, the improvement was so huge that um, we knew that not only did we have it, but we had something that we can make even more, you know, small tweaks and improvements on, which we have been doing. And the walking mechanism's gotten smoother and better. And now he's striding along just beautifully. We've brought him here to the Zara event at the top of uh, Madre Grande. The ground out here is very uneven. Um, it's full of holes from gophers and uh, potholes everywhere. And he's walked all over it and swung all over it right and left and gotten into some pretty crazy angles. And we've walked him all over the property out here and he's has proven that he's perfectly suitable for environments besides Burning Man where it's perfectly flat. He's actually rough rough ground capable. You know, he can walk on rocks and walk on things and and uh, with no trouble at all. We're really, really, really pleased. That's really cool. You said that your your perspective of Burning Man changed when you got elevated in that what, gumball machine? Yeah, in the gumball machine. Um, how long have you been going to Burning Man, and how has it changed through the years? I've been going since 1998, and um, I've been aware of the event for a few years before that. And, yeah, the event, obviously, for many people, has changed. The original early 90s uh, Burning Mans were far more smaller community, kind of like the way this one is, where a whole lot of people know each other. Zara. Yeah, I like Zara. You know, from the, that's the interpretation I got. And it has, it has kind of metamorphosed itself into... Oh, it's hard to say. They they they'll they'll pay for your projects or give you money for your projects if you go along with their theme. And so there's a a growing division out there. It doesn't take long to find it online with the Borg 2 projects and these other things. There was a growing division that said, "Hey, look, if you're using money to tell people how to make their art and saying, "Okay, well, if you don't make your art go with our theme, then we're not going to give you any money." then what kind of free-form expression are you allowing? And so there's been a rather heated argument on the, on the Internet about this. And um, where this is going to take Burning Man and, and just how the art on the playa is going to be impacted by this is, remains to be seen. It has certainly grown in the party sense, uh, with the rave sense, with the nighttime rave scenes. You know, this has dragged in a much younger crowd, and uh, that has changed things for the older crowd as well. Um, I personally enjoy the raves as well as the quiet zones and uh, the old people hanging around and doing their own artistic thing. I, I love all of it. You know, I, I really, really love all of it. I don't like any one aspect of it. But yeah, it has, the event has changed. You know, especially with 30,000 people out there, you have to have the police and the military out there. There's just no way that they could govern it themselves. And they want, they're pretty much not allowed to either. But as long as everybody manages to keep their nose clean, you can pretty much do anything you want out there. You just want to do it intelligently. And um, so for some people, they're kind of upset at the, at the authoritative presence. And some people are kind of upset about the way the art is being, you know, slash manipulated. But overall, I hope to see it continuing on, you know, as it is with small changes for the next, you know, 10, 20 years. I have no idea if Burning Man's going to vaporize at some point because of some singular event. Or if, it's, or if the state's just going to suddenly say, you know, we really don't need this much money. But I know Burning Man generates a lot of money for that thing out there, and so I have a feeling that it's going to go for some time. The money's just too good to say no to. <laughs> and finally, what was it like to interact with um, people on the playa or here at Zara, or at, what's it like to work with, to play with people with your with your big toy? That is that is a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked it. That because that is the most rewarding part of all. 
I had no idea what to expect from the machine. We had walked the machine only 10 feet back and forward in the backyard prior to it to going to Burning Man. So as far as it being fully operational, that never occurred. We had wanted to get it on the trailer, take it places, walk it around. Um, with delay after delay after delay in construction, that never happened. So in the end, the giraffe went straight to the playa, untested, as far as more than walking 10 feet, without having any idea what it was going to do. And we got it on the playa. and. It, this, at this time, the giraffe doesn't really have steering, and we hoped that it had a small steering mechanism built into the wheels with some locking brakes. Well, the brakes failed, and all the oil leaked out of them the moment we got to the playa. So I was very despondent, and for a moment there, I really thought the giraffe was going to sit in camp through the entire event and really never go anywhere. But I brought some ropes with me, and it turned out that if you tied the ropes onto the legs and pulled them while you're off the giraffe, you can get him to steer about a quarter inch per step. And in making him steer, he... It was cumbersome, but Burning Man's got enough space that you can kind of get away with this sort of thing. And so it looked like I was able to actually make it work. So I packed up my tools and things, and I headed for uh, the DMV, the D Department of Mutant Vehicles, to go and get him registered. And along the way, uh, the, the first of all was the rewarding sense. The reaction from the crowd was just one of complete awestruck awe and slack-jawed amazement and at some points just whole you know groups of 100 people or so just broke out in spontaneous applause and to get something like that at Burning Man when you know when when there's just so much eye candy and so many things you know to get that kind of adoration was made that 10 months of absolute nightmare misery of, of working and building it and getting it there it just it, it was one of the most amazing beautiful sense of you know ah reliefs that just could have possibly come to me and the other side of it was something totally unexpected since I had to get off the giraffe to try to help steer it and have other people help me steer it it was always very tiring to climb right back up on the thing and so I would just let it go and then people would start talking to me and we would we would get in a conversation about it and meanwhile the giraffe is walking away down the street with no one on board and this became unexpectedly the greatest treat of all is people skidding to a stop on their bicycles in front of this thing and looking left and looking right and looking up on the machine and no one is on board and since it looks like an animal it triggers something in your head whether you like it or not the fact that you see a bunch of steel and some batteries walking down the street because it looks like an animal you can't help but some spooky little thing in your head that gets turned over that tells you it's alive and people were talking to it and, and petting it and, and interacting with it and, and laying down on the ground and letting it walk over them and letting, you know, 1,700 pounds of steel walk over them as sort of like a rite of passage. That, that's become like a rite of passage to lay down in front of the giraffe and let him walk over you. And um, it just became absolutely fantastic to not be on board and just let him go. And I, there was times where I just took, a, I, I sat and talked in a camp and he wandered out onto the playa half a mile or a quarter mile away from me. And he was just way out there just <laughs> walking along and I'd see people riding up on their bicycles and then they'd look left and look right and just in complete and utter amazement that here's this machine apparently on the loose walking around on the playa. And that, those, those rewards of, 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 of the adoration of the crowd in the first place and then the surprise rewards was just this more than I could have possibly expected. Just just more than I could have expected. So now there's interviews on CNET um, that you can see me on. We just went to the Maker Fair and blew everybody away at the Maker Fair and had fun. Um, I'm getting phone messages from The Tonight Show. They want to do a segment on it. 
Um, Disney has called me and are asking me to bring it to Burbank Studios. Um, what like about to the toy it. company? The t- the, I have yet to contact the toy company. Um, that's going to be my final thing. I'm going to I'm going to gather up a bunch of information together and um, hopefully send this off to Tamaya and hopefully receive a warm reception. It is my dream to have the designer of that little robot of the giraffe or the design team up on that giraffe and walking on it. And I would dearly love it if Tamaya would actually like to import the machine to Japan to one of their trade shows. And or would be really fun would be to con- get a contract from them to build them another one for them to take to their own trade shows. So we'll see what happens. But the first thing I want to do is contact Tamaya of America and say, hey, I have this machine and it's built after this little model. What do you say? You know, and um, and uh, maybe show up at some trade shows with them and see what they think. They might really, really like it. I hope they do. <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun. That it sounds is. like such a joy. Yeah, and it's a project fully in metamorphosis. Um, this is only version one of like what we hope to be about seven major revisions to the machine. We're going to put steering in it. We're going to put computer-controlled spots on it. You know, he's a giraffe. He doesn't have spots yet. So we're going to have computer-controlled spots. We're going to have a neck that <laughs> swallows oh. toys. He'll have a, he'll have, a, have a little toy box in his neck that goes up and down so he can do gifts. And uh, he's going to talk. And you'll be able to look out his eyes with a web camera. You'll be able to log into the giraffe skull and then look out his eyes and joystick the head around. You know, there's many, many, many interactive things. We want to bring this machine to life as much as possible. We want this thing standing there, fidgeting its tail and looking left and looking right and sometimes looking down on the ground. And we might even put some computer programs in it out at Burning Man where it uses a fence based on GPS coordinates. And so the giraffe would have this invisible area to walk around in, but he'll never leave it. And he'll just stay in that area and interact with people. So we hope to bring him to Burning Man and actually me, I will not be on him. I'll be off to the side, you know, kind of interacting with him. And uh, to everybody else who comes up to him, it's going to be a living, breathing creature that actually speaks to him, talks to him, and offers them rides and takes them places on journeys like they will have never experienced before in their whole life. And, and what is he for you? Is he a living thing or is he an entity on his own? Or? He's kind of an extension of myself and an extension of, of, of my brain and what goes on in my head every single day while I'm at my day job. You know, I, I dream these things and I come home and I, and I build them and bolt them onto the machine. And so he's, that, is, that is in itself the art in the machine that I've always striven for and I hope everybody else does in the sense that when you hammer something together, it is a part of you you know when when you fly aboard that airliner you know it, it's really to me a living machine because there were so many people that worked on that thing and put their hands all over it that to me machines really do have a spirit um when you say that you know yeah that car is evil because it, it knows me and it doesn't start on the days i don't want it to and things like that as much as a uh, realist i am and a scientist and a uh, and a person who believes in just standard linear things you know i am more and more waking up to the ghost in the machine. And um, so every little bit of work that I put into this thing is my ghost. And every little bit that we add to it is eventually it's becoming, you know, a little bit more of the friendly me that I am. And I hope to make it just as friendly and just as fun to play with. <laughs> Thank you very much. Is there anything else we say before we wrap this up? Uh, wow. Um San Diego, this machine is for you. This is for every San Diegan. This is putting San Diego on the map, saying, yes, we know our art. And, and, you know, we've got some art to show. And I'm hoping to inspire more San Diegans to wake up and get out of the garage and, and get their machines and, and beautiful art out for people to see. You know, go for the art in the machine and the ghost in the machine and bring them to life and bring them out. Thank you very much, Lindsay. Thank you.
At the end of Zara Dozura, my friend and co-host for Burncast, Chai Guy, left the event to begin his trek across the Pacific Crest Trail. He began his journey about 15 miles from Zara in a small town called Campo near the Mexican border. The Pacific Crest Trail is a long-distance mountain, hiking, and equestrian trail about 2,650 miles long that runs from the United States border with Mexico to its border with Canada. It passes through the Laguna, San Jacinto, San Bernardino, San Gabriel, Libre, Tehachapi, and Sierra Nevada ranges in California and the Cascade Range in Oregon and Washington states. Chai would appreciate your support as he travels the Pacific Crest Trail in the form of a letter or perhaps a care package, which you can mail at mail drops listed in his blog, an email that you can send at chaiguy at gmail.com, or perhaps meeting with him on the trail. For his scheduled checkpoints, visit his blog. Okay. Hey, this is Chai Guy, and I'm here in uh, beautiful Zara Dulzura in Dulzura, California, and I'm about ready to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from Campo, California to Manning Park, British Columbia, and we're hanging out here with the bomb and my good friends Eddie and Billy. And I just wanted to let everyone know where I'm going to be for the next five months. Uh, if I don't respond to your email right away, it's because I don't have email. I'm hiking on the trail, and you can uh, follow along with my adventure at http slash slash semicolon colon something like that yeah. http colon slash slash chai guys with an s dot blogspot dot com or you can email me at chai guy at gmail dot com and i have an autoresponder with that link uh, built in so you can uh, get that information that way and uh, if you want to come out and hike a few miles with me i'd love to have visitors and friends come out and do that and hang out and share my adventures and i hope that you guys all follow along on the website why are you doing this, Jay? Uh, it's just something that I've always wanted to do. Like, I stumbled across a National Geographic book uh, about it that was written in the 70s a few years ago and always had it on my list of things to do, and, and it just seemed like now is the right time. And uh, I'm really excited and have a lot of support from my friends and family for doing this trip, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm actually leaving in about 10 minutes to go do it. <laughs> are you going to make it to Burning Man? Uh, yes, I am. Actually, I'm going to be up in Oregon, somewhere in Oregon at the time of uh, Burning Man, and I will be, uh, uh, another burner has generously offered to pick me up uh, on the highway, and he'll drive me uh, to the event, and then uh, I'll hitchhike back, so <laughs> I can go back and finish it, and I'll have about another month or so uh, left to finish it in, from Oregon to Washington. Do you have anything specific to say to anybody who might be listening? Uh, just that thanks everybody. I mean, it's been, since I've been telling people about this, there's been a huge uh, support and people offering to help. And I just really appreciate everyone's help. And I look forward to uh, attending the event this year and getting lots of good interviews with people. And uh, I look forward to this project really taking off and doing amazing things. And, and I'm just really excited about the next few months. I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you too. You have been listening to Burncast, a podcast about the art, culture, and community of Burning Man. I am DeBaum, your host. For more information, please visit our website, www.burncast.net. And special thanks to Lecter of NoSpectators.com for hosting these podcasts.